Hello, it's 27th of July 2019 and this is episode 111 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? <laughs> Apart from reading Splinter of the Mind's Eye, not at all Star Wars because there has been no news whatsoever. <laughs> um, and I imagine your answer is going to be pretty much the same. Yeah, I guess this week we're not focusing on the future of the saga. It's very much the past slash an alternative history. <laughs> yeah, what that's true, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a misleading like, lead into the show this time because... Yeah, it's definitely not about the sequel trilogy, <laughs> apart from a few minor news items, which are about the sequel trilogy. Um, but yeah, we hope that you will enjoy what we have cooked up, because we did have a lot of fun reading the book, even though it was a bit of a trip, and it leads your mind into all sorts of strange possibilities about what styles could have become. And let me just say I'm happy that we exist in this reality, not the <laughs> splinter of the mind's eye alternate reality because yeah not as fun yeah it's pretty fascinating to kind of compare it to empire it's impossible not to really isn't it oh yeah so as you're reading it you're kind of enjoying it on its own terms but just it's like wow this could have been the sequel to star wars and i guess it was for a brief moment in history yeah which is fascinating but yeah like if parallel universes actually exist i'm sure it would be possible to visit the parallel universe where Splinter of the Mind's Eye was made into a movie and nowadays people just didn't care about Star Wars that much. <laughs> just a truly horrifying dystopian vision. So yeah, be grateful. <laughs> right, at the outset of the show, we wanted to let people know that this is going to be Kirsty's last show for a little while. So yeah, I'm going to miss you a lot, Kirsty. <laughs> oh, I'll miss doing the show too. Mm. Um, yeah, we're not really sure when I'll be back, but... Uh, probably at least a month yeah so yeah a little time away exactly yeah i'll try to listen while i'm away oh thank you yeah no because that's an important thing to mention um i'm gonna have guests on while kirsty is taking her break for baby so i'm gonna be going to a fortnightly schedule so you won't get episodes as frequently um, really just because I want to make sure each guest has plenty of time to work with me on crafting a good strong spotlight discussion and yeah also to just be kind to myself and yeah not keep up the pressure too much because it's easy to do it every week with Kirsty because we kind of have like a shorthand you know and it is very very easy to just work together on the episodes we can do it quite spontaneously to be honest when there's lots of news but when you're doing it with someone who hasn't been on as your co-host before, you need to allow a bit more planning. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's not clear how much news you'll be getting during the gap. Like, I know there's D23 coming up, but that's a little while off still. So, yeah. aside from that, no guarantees. Exactly. And just so people are reassured, I do have one of the, like, Kirsty hiatus <laughs> um, episodes planned for just after the D23 news should all come out. So, yeah, I hope to be able to turn that around quite quickly because those episodes get old really fast <laughs> when that sort of news <laughs> comes out. And it's like, okay, pressure, pressure, pressure. <laughs> Not, like, in an unpleasant way because I really enjoy doing them and it's lots of fun to look at whatever comes out of something like that. But yeah, 
I just I enjoy the pressure in those situations and I want to make sure the content is out there so yeah it will be done <laughs> content content exactly and yeah I'm sure that whenever Kirsty gets to come back on the show then we will have a big catch up and like whatever main and key stuff might have come out during Kirsty's absence we can make sure everyone is brought up to speed and Kirsty gets a chance to share her thoughts etc etc so yeah because there's going to be a few books that come out yeah during that gap as well aren't there so exactly hopefully you get some reading time <laughs> maybe maybe not <laughs> hope <laughs> yeah really gotta take it day by day of so. course yeah it might be a vain hope but yeah we'll see maybe i'll switch to audiobooks yeah that be good. that's a good idea so with that out of the way let's move into our brief little news section so the first thing that we want to cover builds slightly on a piece of news we had last week which is that we have a more detailed description for the Star Wars Allegiance comic series, as well as a variant cover. So the synopsis is, Hounded by the First Order across the galaxy, the Resistance is in dire need of ships, weapons and recruits to make a final stand against Kylo Ren's forces. Desperation drives a delegation led by General Leia Organa and Rey to entreat the rebel veterans' one-time allies, the Mon Calamari, to join the fight. But decades after Imperial occupation enslaved their planet, there are those willing to stop at nothing to prevent another war from bloodying the waters of Mon Cala. A system away, Poe Dameron and Finn have their own mission, to hunt down a weapons cache on the remote moon of Avidot, unaware that they are being hunted by the most notorious criminal gang in the galaxy. Yeah, and would you like to describe the cover that we have, which I believe is for issue 3? Yeah, it looks like the trying to get something done <laughs> bb8's working hard away at something um and finn and poe are trying to either hurry him on or keep him quiet finn's kind of like <laughs> pressing his finger to his lips like Shh. Uh, and someone is coming through the door and they don't look very nice and friendly yeah and they've got glowy red eyes yeah it's a bit scary yeah it's quite frightening and it also looks like a cold planet because yeah finn is wearing like a nice furry jacket that looks Mm -hmm. very cozy um so yeah without any context it's like it could be showing anything um but yeah finn and poe are definitely together with bba and they're about to be confronted with a scary intimidating looking person that is mm. what we can gather, definitively. The art's very well done. Yeah, no, it is. It's nice dynamic cover art and the likenesses are good. So, yeah, I'm sure it'll be a quality series. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, what do you make of this synopsis? Do you, like, take anything from it particularly? Uh, I like the idea of Ray accompanying Leia on diplomatic missions. Yes, that was my main takeaway as well. <laughs> it's very different for her. It feels quite like a fanfic. <laughs> yeah. I would love it if they finally used this opportunity to put her in a dress. It's like, come on, you're in a, on a diplomatic <laughs> mission. It's probably going to be some sort of reception or formal event or something. You've got to change out those khaki pants and like <laughs> put the staff away just for like this one thing. And mm. yeah, it could be a proper My Fair Lady moment, which I would appreciate. Yeah, I'm just really hungry for more Leia and Ray interactions because that's something that I've... I just wanted more from the sequel trilogy in general. Yeah. So they could do a lot there. Yeah. No, it's really nice. It was going to be good to see them paired up and hopefully see that sort of mentoring relationship going on between them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, and it's interesting, the idea of the Mon Calamari having factions and some people just being like, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) We don't want to get entangled this time. Which, to be fair, I think is quite reasonable, you know, given the dire consequences of siding with the rebellion before. I can understand why you would be put off. And, yeah, like, I'm sure ultimately they're going to be one around and they're going to become allies of the resistance. I would hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, this is just a long story about a failed <laughs> attempt to get an ally. Yeah. Yeah. It could continue that message of failure from The Last Jedi. It could. But I think we need some hope at this point, don't we? Yeah. I think that's the more reasonable <laughs> suggestion, to be honest. But yeah, and I also find it intriguing that Poe and Finn are being tracked by a criminal gang. So I do wonder what that's all about. Like, whether they have a bounty placed on them or if they've crossed some bad guys or it could be any number of things but yeah Mm -hmm. it has the potential for an interesting dynamic definitely looking forward to that series yeah it's definitely one of the comic runs that i'm going to pick up i think so it seems like it should have some interesting groundwork for the movie Mm -hmm. and speaking of comics oh good transition (laughs) (laughs) next piece of news um I have to laugh at how this news was delivered, to be honest, because this was something that we were all eager to know after Comic-Con, uh, when at the publishing panel they revealed that there is going to be a new mini-series on Kylo Ren and the Knights of Ren, mm-hmm. The Rise of Kylo Ren by Charles Saul. Uh, he did like an Ask Me Anything on uh, Twitter a couple of days ago, and someone asked, will all the Rise of Kylo Ren issues be released before the Rise of Skywalker? And he replied, no, just the first so i think it's a is it a series of four yes i think that's what they said yeah so this was something that we were wondering about in last week's episode will they come out before or after the movie because that kind of has implications for how much backstory they can go into whether things get into potential spoilery territory yeah if they can show matt smith as one of the knights of ren (laughs) which to be clear is not a spoiler (laughs) that is just my like theory so i really really want him to be one (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah no i agree it's really interesting yeah one can only imagine that it's going to have to be quite plot critical information coming out in some of these later issues of the series for them to be released after the movie if there's Mm. nothing particularly like notable or surprising like in those later issues then it is going to be a bit of an anticlimax to be honest it'll be like okay why didn't you just use this in the run-up to the movie to build hype And it could just be a case of them showcasing more of the Knights' personalities and their names and stuff like that that they may still want to keep secret. Sure, yeah. So, who knows? But there's got to be something for them to make make that choice, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, much like with the Allegiance comics, this is definitely going to be a must-buy, I think, for both of us. We're really excited for the series. Definitely. Cool. Um, and then we have some minor insight from Kevin Smith on an, an important set that was used in The Rise of Skywalker. Um, would you care to read out that quote from him, Kirsty? Sure. So he was speaking to IGN um, and they asked him, can you predict the last shot of Star Wars Episode Nine? <laughs> uh, maybe you've seen it. I have no idea. Uh, he says, I haven't seen it, but I was on set. I went to London at one point and visited. JJ invited me because I had a heart attack. 
he wrote to me, you got to pull through, man, so you can visit Star Wars. And I was, can I be in it? And he was like, come visit. So I pulled through and I wrote him back. Remember when you said, and he was, come on out. So I got to hang out and be on set. And there was this scuttlebutt about a set. They're on Pinewood. A big set that they were like, you have to see this. When you see it, it will melt your mind. And I was like, what What was it? They were like, ask JJ. So I asked JJ. They keep telling me I should go and see the set. And he goes, don't. I say, why? And he goes, it's the last shot of the movie. <laughs> so I was like, now I really want to see it. And he goes, you don't want to be spoiled. You want to be in a theater when this happens. Trust me. And then other people on the crew were like, bro, I wish I hadn't seen it. I'm glad I did. It will melt your mind. For that reason alone, no matter how curious I am, I desperately wanted to go and look. But when you talk to the magician and the magician's like, trust me on this one. You know, sometimes as human beings, we want to know how they pull the rabbit out of the hat. And JJ is such a magical magician. (laughs) And I'm just like, you know what? Trick me. I will wait to be tricked. Even though I could have seen what it was, I was like, I will sit back. I like your plan. He's never let me down so far. There are people in the world knowing what that last shot is, even if the movie is not fully cut at this point, and I am not one of them. That's so interesting to hear that quote read in full. So I've read so much misreporting concerning this. Well, because the whole point is that he doesn't know. He's just heard it from other people, and then he made the choice not to go and look, which I think is probably the right choice. Although, if I was in that position, it'd be hard to resist. Yeah. No, I remember when like the major, major Last Jedi spoilers came out and you were like instantly like, yep, read them all. <laughs> <laughs> There's like trying to fight. Well, trying. you were going a couple of days earlier than me, I think. This is true. So <laughs> I had more of an incentive to try and resist than you did. But I know it was bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I don't know, when you're so invested in something, it's it's like having this huge... like box of delicious chocolates that you really really love and you you can reach them you can have them anytime you want but it's just you're dependent on your self-control so it's purely a test of self-control basically yeah and i don't think you know you can know what happens in a movie and still be wowed by the movie itself when you watch it oh yeah no 100 percent. like i didn't go in completely clean like i read like quite significant spoilers mostly the ones from the last jedi visual dictionary which weren't like, this is how the film ends. But there was significant stuff in that, and it didn't ruin my experience in the movie at all. And I'm sure you felt the same, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I watch movies all the time where I've heard about the basic premise and stuff that happens, and I've even... I mean, you know, with people who watch, like, The Sixth Sense these days, they probably know the twist. Yeah, I don't, actually. This came (gasps) up in work um, a few days ago, so do not tell me the twist. (laughs) Wow, okay. (laughs) Yeah. You should watch it soon. Yeah, no, I should. It's definitely come up that, um, yeah, I need to correct that, basically. Okay, I'm glad I didn't just blurt that out then. Yeah, no, thank you for sparing me. <laughs> but but another example would be people who watch Star Wars these days and either do or don't know that Vader is Luke's father. Yeah. Because, of course, we have the prequels now. So if people watch those first, then they do know. Yeah. No, like, it's so interesting, like how that prior knowledge can inform your experience of watching the film because once you know that vader is luke's father it does completely change what you're watching in empire and Mm -hmm. yeah it's part of what enriches it so much which i think we're going to go into when we talk about splinter (laughs) Um. yes because that's very different (laughs) yeah but coming back to what kevin was saying Mm. um obviously yeah he makes it clear he doesn't know 
but people were saying to him it will melt your mind and JJ's like it's the last shot you really want to save it until you see the movie so presumably the movie's like building towards something yeah um what do you think it could be that's such a tough thing to answer isn't it um based on the little I know about Kevin Smith I know that He's an absolutely massive original trilogy fan. So, like, he's a fan of almost everything. You know, he's so enthusiastic and excited about pretty much all pop culture and media. It's lovely. But I think of Star Wars original trilogy as his jam. You know, that's what he really loves and feels passionate about. So Mm -hmm. I think if people were approaching him and saying, this is going to blow your mind, I really think it has to be some sort of iconic set piece or location from the original trilogy yeah if you were to make me choose i would choose the homestead on tatooine and i think my reason for choosing that would just be the old campbellian thing of returning home at the end of the story and like bringing back with you what you have gained over the course of your adventure i know that i have reservations of campbell and i don't think he's the be all and end all but yeah, I think that idea of returning back to the place where you started, I think there's something very powerful in that. So I could see it being that for several reasons. Yeah, I think the big reason for me that that's a possibility is that it does unite all of the trilogies. Mm. Obviously, that's a big factor in the prequels too. Yeah. The only thing that makes me kind of sceptical about that is that they did a bit of a riff on that with the binary sunset on arc two. Yes. Uh, but I'm sure it would be executed differently. But that meant a lot for Luke specifically, didn't it? So Yeah, of course. I think it would have to be a very different context and framing. And I don't know. For me, it's hard to imagine any specific set blowing my mind. Because it would always need to be about, okay, so who's involved with this set? And what does the use of this location mean for the story? So there's always limits to how much just a location tells me. But yeah, like if it were the homestead on Tatooine, it would be hella cool. I'd like to see it. <laughs> yeah i i wouldn't be surprised if it's something from the original trilogy and if you're thinking about that then then really i mean yeah aside from endor <laughs> i don't know i don't know what else ewok village dancing dance party <laughs> yay <laughs> oh my gosh but yeah it's really hard to say but i know that they're working on something awesome and yeah, I'd like to say that I'd like to keep it all holy and sacred and a surprise until I go see it in the cinema, but we all know that won't happen. Not 100% anyway. I think I like to think I have the self-control to not like spoil the ending for myself, for example, before I go and see it. But it all depends on what people are saying, you know. If people are saying you need to know what's going to happen to emotionally prepare yourself, then I might be convinced to know what's happening beforehand, you know. Um, so... Yeah, I'm sure it's the kind of thing that everyone would feel differently about as well. Because, you know, like he says, people were warning him against it, including JJ. Although he might just not have not wanted another person in the world to know about it, because that increases the chances of a full-blown leak. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. It's not that long away now. We, we can wait half a year. Exactly. It's less than 150 days, which is quite <laughs> frightening to think about. Yeah. We're in two figures before we know it. Yeah. okay cool so let's move on to our spotlight section which is on the 
interesting curio that is Splinter of the Mind's Eye by Alan Dean Foster. So Splinter of the Mind's Eye was published in 1978, um, just after the original Star Wars came out in theatres, and it's a direct sequel to the original Star Wars, basically. It's quite a fascinating thing, because as we were discussing in the intro, it's sort of like this alternate take of a narrative on how things could have gone. Do you want to go into that a little bit, Kirsty? Yeah, I mean, we already know that there are a few different iterations of the sequel, because of course there was the Lee Brackett version of Empire as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously some stuff made it into the final version, um, but this is like a very specific slice of history because it was almost redundant as it was coming out because George must have been working on Empire at that point. Mm. So Alan Dean Foster wrote the novelization for Star Wars and then I think, as I understand it, um, George wasn't sure that Star Wars was going to be commercially successful enough to justify a sequel. Yeah. So they decided to put together a novelization and then maybe that could have been adapted into a film. But... Mm -hmm. Of course, as we know, they went in a very different direction. Mm. So it's kind of like this weird fanfic that at one point was canon, uh, very quickly wasn't. And if I put myself in the shoes of someone who would have been reading it at the time, it must have been absolutely jarring to read this, think of it as the sequel to Star Wars, and then go to the cinema two years later and watch Empire. Oh yeah. No, it completely <laughs> blow your mind, I think. It'd be like, this is strange. <laughs> yeah. So remember after The Last Jedi came out, there were a lot of um, old reactions to Empire circulating like, oh, see, this is just what Star Wars fans have always been like. They don't like how things are different and there's twists and turns and some versions. Mm. But reading this in that context, I, I understand why people might have been a bit more surprised. Oh, yeah. No, I think surprise would be completely valid. Yeah, to sort of understand how this story came about, I looked into some quotes about the development of this novel specifically and also just the more general relationship between Lucas and Foster. So I was interested in what sort of discussions they'd had about Star Wars and where the story was going. Would you care to read out the quote I have highlighted, Kirsty? Sure. Um, so this is from StarWars.com. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just quickly, it's by J.W. Rinsler, and I think it's an excerpt from the making of Star Wars book. So, yeah, just a bit of context for people. On December 29th, 1975, in conversation with Alan Dean Foster per the novelization of Star Wars, Lucas mentioned the prequel trilogy, along with what would become episodes five and six. I want to have Luke kiss the princess in the second book. In the third book, I want the story just about the soap opera of the Skywalker family, which ends with the destruction of the Empire. Then someday, I want to do the backstory of Kenobi as a young man. A story of the Jedi, and how the Emperor eventually takes over and turns the whole thing from a Republic into an Empire, and tricks all the Jedi and kills them. The whole battle where Luke's father gets killed. That would be impossible to do, but it's great to dream about. Yeah. So I thought this quote was really interesting because it doesn't really reflect what Foster ended up writing for Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but it's helpful to have as foundation to, okay, what were they talking about and what was in George's mind about where this series would go? And yeah, I think it's interesting. You see some fundamental things that he did actually realise with what was to come. 
because yeah the original trilogy does wind up very much being a soap opera and the description of the prequel trilogy is very impressively close to what we got given that this was like 20 years out of course that evolved into being more of anakin's story than kenobi's but at that point they hadn't properly decided that vader was going to be luke's father right yeah exactly that's why lucas makes a point about the battle where luke's father was killed because yeah, obviously there's a whole bullshit about from a certain point of view. But here, he is literally talking about a battle where Luke's father dies. Yeah, and you can argue that that is Mustafar, but he dies in a sense. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think Lucas definitely meant complete death, not sort of this half death that Anakin goes yeah. through. It's very interesting that he describes it as the soap opera of the family, because at this point, it's just Luke who's a Skywalker. Yeah. Maybe it was the whole idea of the soap opera being the romance element, which, <laughs> again, that's weird because, yeah, Luke is the only Skywalker. So I guess you mean it's the Skywalker soap opera because Luke is the Skywalker, even though there's no other Skywalkers. But who knows? It's a bit strange and weird. I guess if the end goal was to have Luke eventually marry the princess, then she would become a Skywalker too. And maybe the sequels were going to be about their children. <laughs> Yes, perhaps. It's <laughs> very creepy. Han Solo is just like awkwardly shoved to the side. <laughs> yeah, it's just all very cringe and awkward. Basically, there were several things that informed how Splinter of the Mind's Eye was to develop. So, first of all, Lucas wanted a story that could be adapted into a low-budget film. <laughs> and that's important because Splinter of the Mind's Eye takes place largely on this like dreary, fog-covered planet. And you can imagine that working on a film where you wouldn't have to spend that much on huge set pieces because they'd just be covered in mist. Oh yeah, of course yeah. we see Mimban in Solo, right? Yeah. Um, so they did bring that back into canon. But yeah, as you're reading it and you're keeping that in mind, it's like, oh, I can completely see it. This would have been a pretty easy movie to make, make money-wise. Um, and of course, they, they just had no idea how Star Wars was going to do. Yeah, so. exactly. When it made an unprecedented amount of money, it changed everything. Suddenly, the sky was the limit for the story they wanted to tell. Um, and yeah, like I think, if anything, Splinter of the Mind's Eye represents a very modest like negotiation of... Well, it's not really the sort of story I'd want to tell in an ideal world as a sequel, but it's enough, you know, if we decide we want to go somewhere else with it, but we can't fulfill the actual vision I have. Because I think that quote that you read from the December 1975 meeting, I think that was Lucas's ideal vision. I don't think that was Lucas indicating to Foster what he wanted Splinter of the Mind's Eye to be. <laughs> I don't think Luke and Leia kiss, for one thing, in Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Whereas they do in Empire, so that's a telling difference. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, they get pretty close sometimes, and Luke's obviously thinking about it. Oh yeah, there's very, very heavy sexual tension, <laughs> which we'll explore in some detail. <laughs> yeah, in terms of how practical concerns were shaping the narrative here, like, you've got this uh, questionnaire about, like, why aren't Han and Chewie in the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically this is an interview of Alan Dean Foster by Stars Newsnet, and so they asked him, why did you not put Han and Chewbacca in Splinter of the Mind's Eye? And then Alan, at the time I was writing the book, Harrison Ford had not yet signed on for any additional Star Wars projects, so I was required to not use him, and in those days, without Han Solo around, there was no reason to include Chewbacca. 
I love Alan Dean. He's just so upfront and matter of fact about everything. It's yeah, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like and true to his word, there is absolutely zero Han Solo in this book. Um, yeah, I think he's mentioned once or twice. Yeah, he's like alluded to, but never even by name. Which that struck me as a bit too far. Should think, okay, even if Harrison Ford is not going to be in this movie in person what would stop you from even referring to him, you know? Yeah, he still has a relationship with both of these characters, even if he's off in another corner of the galaxy at this point. Yeah, you'd think they would just have like a paragraph at the beginning, you know, be like, oh, hands back to his old smuggling way- ways, or he's helping <laughs> the rebellion do whatever. But nope, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. And yeah, just in relation to what we've been covering... Um, Alan Dean, in his own words, describes what went on with Splinter, basically. So this is another interview of Jedi News. And so they asked him, how soon did you start writing Splinter? I started writing it straight after I submitted the manuscript for Star Wars, the novelization. So it was entirely written before Star Wars, the film, came out. So I think that's interesting because would you say, Kirsty, that that shows? (laughs) Yes, <laughs> because, and I know that the cultural impact of Star Wars when it was first released was obviously different from how it is today, mm-hmm. but you can really, t- the story is on such a smaller scale, the characters aren't really developing, uh, it's a very straightforward like action-adventure story. Yeah. Um, and at its core, the first Star Wars is kind of like that, you know, you only really deepen the characters and those relationships when you get to Empire. Yeah. So it's very much like a kind of weird in-between story. Um, I was kind of comparing it to one of the novels that they bring out as they're promoting the new films these days, like the journey to the next movie. Yeah. Where, you know, you get a taste of the characters and they're on some crazy adventure, but there's not a ton of depth and development because they're saving that for the big stuff. Yeah. No, I think that's very fair. Yeah, and then there's just another section of the interview. Um, Would you care to read out this bit, Kirsty? Sure. So he's asked, did you have a brief for the storyline of Splinter or was it completely your own choice? He says, the people making the film had no time to deal with this sort of thing. Just go and write a sequel novel. (laughs) (laughs) The only restraints that were put on me were, as you may already know, George had the idea that if the film was hugely successful, he could go do whatever he wanted. If it was a complete, complete flop nothing else would happen but if the film made some money he might be in the situation to make a low budget sequel and the idea was to use as many of the props backgrounds and costumes from the original film as possible i was asked to write the sequel that could be filmed if necessary on a low budget that's why i set it primarily on a fog clouded planet to exclude the need for expensive backdrops and underground and canyons would have been cheap to shoot other than that i was allowed to write whatever i wanted So I came up with this idea of Luke and Leia. Well, you've read the book. You know the story. (laughs) Also, if you know the wonderful cover painting by Ralph McQuarrie, you only see Luke and Leia from behind. This was because Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher had not signed for the use of their likenesses in promotional material. (laughs) McQuarrie then cleverly painted both characters from behind so you don't see their faces. (laughs) Which is absolutely hilarious. Yeah, they thought of everything. Yeah, so... Yeah, I think that just sums up basically what we were saying about this is a book that is built based on restrictions, essentially. So it was like, you have this limitation, you have this limitation, you have this limitation, go and write a book. So 
Yeah. yeah. But other than that, he can do the story he wants because they didn't even really care. <laughs> exactly. There's definitely no story group in 1977. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's just a really striking insight into the world of Star Wars spin-offs and ancillary material at the time. Because, yeah, it just wasn't a big deal at the time. It was all about testing the market and seeing how much money you could make and yeah like obviously it's still about making money you know they don't put out Star Wars novels for altruistic reasons (laughs) but um there's definitely some care and thought given to what is the overall story we're telling and does this contradict anything else and do we want to tell this story at this point in time etc etc which obviously wasn't the case at all with this book yeah and there's a weight to it and they know that people have such attachments to these characters which uh, I'm sure people really latched on to Luke and Leia after the Star Wars came out, but because they didn't have the arc of the original trilogy at that point, um, it was kind of this sense that Alan could do anything he wanted with these characters. Oh yeah, exactly. And I think the fact that the book was entirely written before Star Wars came out in cinemas, that would have also affected things a great deal. So it's not like yeah. he would have had any insight into how people responded to these characters and what they took away from them so it's fascinating so it's a book that's based purely on the script in isolation without any awareness of the cultural phenomenon that the original stars would become so mm-hmm. it's a very unique thing in that regard yeah and i think for that reason the characters feel very different from how they actually ended up going oh, at God, least yes. in my mind oh no same yeah so i think with that background to this book out of the way I think we should move into our general thoughts. We're going to go through the book in some detail with quotes and everything. But to begin with, we just wanted to sum up our feelings, which we've obviously alluded to several times now. But yeah, what would your like general non-spoiler review of the book be, Kirsty? In general, I enjoyed it. I was trying to enjoy it on its own terms. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty difficult to do that. You know, just to pretend that this is the sequel of Star Wars. And then try and ignore the massive cultural influence that Empire has, which is honestly a vastly superior story with real stakes and character development. Oh, yeah. Um, But for what it is, you know, it's a simple pulpy sci-fi adventure. It's fine. And it does have its amusing moments, although I think that's mostly down to how we know Star Wars ended up going. So obviously the big one is looking at Luke and Leia's dynamic with the benefit of hindsight. (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. I almost feel sorry for poor Alan, like, all the shit he gets about that. Oh, I'm sure he finds it funny. Like, Yeah. Because he obviously didn't know, so it's not like him just being a weirdo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Alan, you and your weird kinks. And if he wrote, (laughs) you know, Luke and Leia in Star Wars, the novelization, there is that stuff there. Yeah, I'm sure Lucasfilm are weird about it now. But we can't pretend that that stuff isn't in the original trilogy and that George didn't intend originally for Luke and Leia to get together. Oh, George tries to pretend. Empire, but... <laughs> oh, not very um, successfully, I think. But yeah, I think in general, I would really recommend this to people who are interested in Star Wars because it's such a fascinating look at what could have been. Oh, yeah. Um, 
the same way I find it fascinating to hear about Lee Brackett's version of Empire. It's like they could have really gone in all of these different directions for the sequel to Star Wars, and each one would have affected its cultural impact so much. Um, but the reality also is that this book is very much a product of its time. Mm, yeah, 100%. Um, and particularly in terms of how Leia is written, in my opinion. Yeah. Or not not just how she's written as a character, but how she's described by others, how others treat her. Uh, <laughs> it's very different from the Leia that I know. Yes. And how she is portrayed throughout the original trilogy. So Yeah. We're going to get into some very specific examples of that. So <laughs> we won't go too deep into that right now. But yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Um, the portrayal of Leia is fundamentally problematic in this book to the point where it's so like strong a theme in the book and it comes up so often that I just started to find it quite funny because it was just so over the top and ridiculous yeah it would not fly now and I'm grateful that we live in a world where it would not fly now because it's like yeah we can do much better of our female characters than this Mm -hmm. yeah you can't imagine Ray being written this way and um even Luke in this story, I know that he's kind of like this to an extent in Star Wars, like being quite the self-insert for young boys and obviously for Lucas himself. Um, but <laughs> I think maybe if this is what he's like throughout Legends, and I don't know if that's the case because I've I've read one or two Legends novels and none that actually concern the Skywalker family in major ways. Mm. Uh if this is what he's like there, then I'm starting to understand a bit more why so many fans have trouble with him being fallible in the sequel trilogy. Yeah. It's like ultimate Gary Stew because the 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 way the story is constructed, it's very simple, like almost like a fanfic trope that they get stranded together and they have to find their way off this planet. And it's just a case of Luke rescuing Leia multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> and always being the hero. Basically, every scenario is engineered to make Luke look as good as possible <laughs> in this book. Um, yeah, and it just gets a bit eye-rolly. Um, like, for my general thoughts, I thought it was enjoyable enough. I had fun reading it. And, yeah, I did my best to try and take it on its own terms. Although, again, it's very difficult because you can't forget that the Empire Strikes Back exists. Um, but... Yeah, like it's very much like an odd curiosity and I think it's best approached on those terms. It shouldn't be taken too seriously. It's It very much needs to be understood for what it is. And yeah, don't look at it as some sort of like legitimate work of literature or anything. Because yeah, it's just a pulp sci-fi novel from the 1970s and it lives up to that description in every regard, basically. So if you're familiar with that style of writing and all the sorts of typical tropes and stuff that go into like trash sci-fi from that era, all of them are here, basically. And they're enjoyable enough. There's lots of cheap frills in this book. And while I sometimes find Alan's writing a bit questionable, mainly because of the constant use of... Like, no one can just say something to someone else. You know, it's always like... Oh, you'll never overcome me, little princess. You know, it's like, you don't need to say that. You're talking to her. She knows that you are talking to her. You do not need to call her some sort of demeaning name. And, <laughs> like, that's the sort of thing that works if you do it, like, 
once in the whole book, but it happens every other sentence. Yeah, it's quite melodramatic, isn't it? Yeah, it's very melodramatic, and it's just too much. Um, but I will praise Alan for his fight scenes. Like, there's a brawl early on where Luke is fighting a, bun- a bunch of thugs because, of course, they are threatening the fair damsel, so he needs to defend her from them. And it's quite a well-written scene as, like, a piece of violent, bloody action. And it really did get very violent. I was like, wow, yeah, this is really appealing to, like, all those, like, violence-hungry adolescent boys. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a good thing to cater to that taste, but it does. It's 100% what it's doing, so, yeah. Yeah. That's another thing to note, that it's very clearly written primarily for a male audience, let's be honest. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think if you read this as like a 13-year-old boy, you'd probably think it was amazing. Like this is a 13-year-old boy in the 1970s, just to be clear. So I think nowadays, I like to think people would have more sophisticated tastes. I honestly lost count of the amount of times Leia's physical attractiveness was noted. (laughs) (laughs) And not just by Luke, by by Alan Dean Foster himself, just in the way he described Leia, but also in all of the other characters they encounter too. It has to be something that they comment on and are quite creepy about. Oh, yeah. It's like, we get it. Carrie Fisher is very beautiful. Yeah. And, yeah, it gets gross, but again, we'll go into the specifics of that. Oh, my gosh. And, yeah, another thing I just wanted to note in this general section is... Reading this book really reminded me of how important Han Solo is as a character and what you lose by not having him in a Star yeah. Wars story. Because you need him for them to spark off of. Yeah, like just Luke and Leia, man. It's just not as interesting. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> because also, because Leia is written a little differently from how we know her in Empire and Jedi. Yeah. Um, and even in A New Hope, really, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. And Luke, I think. Yeah, like, it's more like you're told that Leia is feisty, but her actual behaviour is not so much. Mm. It is in some ways, but there's parts that definitely feel out of character in hindsight. Yeah, no, some of it bizarrely so. You're like, you just did what? (laughs) Because obviously we have, like, decades and decades of familiarity with these characters in our heads. And we do have certain ideas about what they would do and say. And yeah, a lot of this book just does not jive with that. Right. Yeah. And um, very little of it compared with Empire actually deals with like the mysticism of the Force. Mm. So you get little bits of that, mostly manifesting in Luke thinking about Ben Kenobi and what he taught him. Yeah. And also a bit of the new character who's called Halla who's yeah. like an older woman that they meet on the planet they crash land on. And I thought she was quite a cool character, actually. Oh, yeah, she her. had a lot of personality. Yeah. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that they'd chosen to give him an older female mentor figure. Yeah, no, exactly. And she wasn't remotely sexualized or like undermined at all. She was just a character and she was well-rounded and funny and engaging. And it's like, see, you can do it. You can do it just fine. <laughs> yeah and she's very different from how they ended up writing yoda as well she's very much a character in her own right yep so yeah before we start reading out the synopsis that we have for the book because basically we appreciate that a lot of people listening might not have read this book and while we recommend it as an interesting curio that you should seek out we want to try and make this as listenable as possible to people 
So we're going to try and set the scene for each part of the book and then give some more specific thoughts on what happens in those sections. Um, and yeah, just before we go into the synopsis, there's some interesting background that's literally on the first page. Um, and it provides some background to Luke, basically. That confused me the first time I read it, just because of <laughs> how Alan Dean writes. Um, so yeah, it says... In depressed moments, he felt sure there was no really happy living matter on any of those worlds, only a plethora of destructive human diseases, which fought and raged constantly against one another, a sequence of cancerous civilizations, which fed on its own body, never healing, yet somehow not quite dying. A particularly virulent strain of one of those cancers had killed his own mother and father, then his aunt Baru and uncle Owen. It had also taken from him the man he had learned to respect more than any other, the elderly Jedi Knight, Ben Kenobi. And I don't know about you, Kirsty, but this confused the hell out of me when I first read it because I didn't get that he was going for a metaphor and I had to like read it twice to figure out. I think it's on the pe- the second page, or at least in my edition, that it becomes clear that what he's actually talking about is that the Empire is the cancer. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, he was being a bit too oblique for his own good, I think. <laughs> it's like, I know you're trying to give some sort of weight to this. <laughs> it's like... Um, yeah, and this is just another interesting reminder of the fact that we're very much in the early development of Star Wars when, yeah, Luke's parents were basically irrelevant and they were very much dead and in the past. And, yeah, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. And Ben Kenobi and his relationship with Luke is the major through line. Yes. Um, like there are several times where Luke feels like he senses Ben as he's using the lightsaber or trying to use the force or needs help with something. Yeah. Um, he hears the voice in his head, um, which of course is something that, yes, appeared first in Star Wars when he's telling Luke to run, but they, they obviously chose to build on that with Empire as well. Yeah. It's definitely much more in line with the Stoll's depiction of that than the Empire depiction of it. Yeah, there's not an idea of Force ghosts. Yeah, exactly. There's no like physical manifestation of Obi-Wan. It's purely in Luke's mind. Which makes mm-hmm. sense. Alan Dean clearly didn't want to overstretch the mark. Um, yeah, cool. So would you care to read out the bit I've highlighted for the first part of the synopsis, Kirsty? Luke and Leia are travelling with R2-D2 and C-3PO to a planet known as Sarkarpus 4 to persuade the Sarkarpusians Sarko- <laughs> how catchy um, to join the Rebel Alliance. A strange energy storm forces them to crash land on the swampy planet Mimban. They begin looking for a station that would allow them to get off the planet, but instead they find a town near which agents of the Empire have a secret energy mine which was the cause of their crash. <laughs> So basically the book is about them eventually trying to find their way off the planet, but of course they go on several adventures <laughs> in the meantime. Exactly. And the plot itself, let's face it, is quite perfunctory, to be honest. Um, you don't really care about the diplomatic mission they're on. Essentially the main point of interest in this whole first section is all the weird creepy stuff going on with Luke and Leia. So, yeah. What were some of the highlights for you, Kirsty? Some of the descriptions were just hilarious. <laughs> like, whenever he looked at her, the other, as in Leia, caused emotions to boil within him, like soup too long on the fire. 
No matter if she was separated from him by near vacuum as at present, or by only an arm's length in a conference room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I kind of like how it does go back and recap that first her portrait and then her person had initiated the irreversible metamorphosis from farm boy to fighter pilot. Because that is kind of what happens in the first Star Wars, oh, right? Yeah. Like he sees he sees Leia in the hologram, and that kind of pushes him on the first leg of his journey. Yeah. No, it's very much this whole sexual awakening thing, as weirded out by that as people must be now. Like, that was clearly the intent in the original Star Wars. And she's beautiful. <laughs> it's like, oh, the first girl I've ever seen. Not true. Um, but yeah, probably the first girl who isn't covered in sand. <laughs> um but yeah it's just filled with like golden hearts basically um i like what you have here kirsty about leia's voice being as naturally sweet and pleasing as sugar laden fruit i I certainly know that's what my voice sounds like (laughs) (laughs) it's not even what leia's voice sounds like that's what gets me yeah she's so idealized in this obviously leia is a beautiful amazing young woman Mm. But the way she's described here, and it must be the idea is that it's from Luke's perspective that when he hears her talking, it's as naturally sweet and pleasing as a sugar-laden fruit. But that doesn't sound like Leia to me. No, Carrie she, has she, quite she, a deep voice, doesn't she? Yeah, and she's like not for a like woman, super you know, sweet like and not, demure. Yeah, like it really, it makes me think. I'm not sure Alan would have even seen a cut of the film, to be honest. Oh, that's a good point. So it's questionable if he'd actually heard Carrie Fisher speak. And he's just completely guessing how she sounds. I think that's very plausible. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that could explain it. Um, Yeah, another highlight that I have is that Leia apparently has seal curve hips. Which, yeah. Oh, is that where they're getting changed? Yes, it is. I might actually have the whole quote with that. (laughs) Um... So the idea basically is that they've crash landed on this planet and it's very clear that neither of them are like local miners (laughs) um, based on their costumes and then, uh, well, eventually they arouse suspicion because Leia has like the hands of someone who obviously doesn't spend their life doing manual labour, stuff like that. So they have to kind of lie about who they are. Um, But at this point they're having to get changed into like different outfits and then they get all muddy because of course they're on a swampy, muddy planet. Um, so did you want to read out the quote? Uh, Yeah, sure, I will. Um, Well pleased with himself, Luke stepped down to the ground and began unsnapping his flight suit. He was partially undressed when he paused and noticed the princess standing and staring at him. Come on, we have to hurry! She put hands on seal curved hips, cocked her head to one side, and stared meaningfully at him. Oh! he murmured, half smiling. He turned away and continued undressing. Feeling that nothing had changed behind him, he sneaked a glance, saw the princess still eyeing him uncomfortably. What's wrong, princess? She sounded embarrassed. Luke, I like you, and we've known each other for a while, but I'm not sure I can trust you. Now. Yeah, (laughs) it's full of stuff like this. Basically, and um, but I will give this kudos for being one of the very rare parts of Splinter of the Mind's Eye where it suggests to some small extent that Leia is also attracted to Luke. 
because otherwise it's so one-sided to the point that actually becomes very creepy. Yeah. I mean, because I think this being early on is a good move because it does kind of set up that she is at least attracted to him. But like you say, after that, it's very much like Luke wants to kiss her. Luke finds her beautiful. Yes. And we don't get into Leia's head in the same way because Luke is the protagonist. So Yeah. And Leia is very much treated as like an object to be lusted after and saved, to be frank. <laughs> it's not a very empowering portrayal. Um yeah, would you like to read out Luke's thought process, for example, Kirsty, not too long after that moment? Mm-hmm. Then he happened to glance down at his companion's face. It was not the face of a princess and a senator or of a leader of the Rebel Alliance, but instead that of a chilled child. Moistly parted in sleep, her lips seemed to beckon to him. He leaned closer, seeking refuge from the damp green and brown of the swamp in that hypnotic redness. He hesitated, pulled back. She was an aristocrat and rebel leader. For all he'd accomplished above Yavin, he was still only a pilot, and before that, a farmer's nephew. Peasant and princess, he mused disgustedly. <laughs> his assignment was to protect her. He wouldn't abuse that trust, no matter his own hopeless hopes. He would defend her against anything that leapt out of the darkness, crawled from the slime, dropped from the gnarled branches they walked under. He would do it out of respect and admiration, and possibly out of the most powerful of emotions, unrequited love. He would even defend her from himself. <laughs> He determined tiredly. <laughs> what a hero. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> the fact that he's considering and is tempted to kiss her in her sleep... And by the way, they you know they haven't kissed at this point, so this, this would be their first kiss and she's unconscious. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, oh, wait, but I am working class and she's not, as if that's the issue. And it's also very disturbing to me that when he looks at her, his thought is that she has the face of a chilled child. That would I I'm really disturbed that that thought ignites your lust, Luke. It's like ooh, there's just so many layers of wrong on this, just taken on its own terms, completely yeah. putting and, aside the incestuous <laughs> stuff. And it's not the face of a princess or senator or leader of the Rebel Alliance, which. It is, and those are all important parts of Leia's character and accomplishments. Yeah. It completely consciously infantilizes her. Yeah. Would you like love for you to be expressed through like um, being defended against anything that leaps out of the darkness, crawls from the slime, drops from gnarled branches? Like, does that impress you, Kirsty? No. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of bums me out that that's what Leia needs in this story, because... We know that Leia doesn't need that. And in fact, really, that was established in the first Star Wars movie, wasn't it? When yeah. they went to rescue her and it ended up like, okay, well, she's going to help them escape too. It's not like she needs to be a damsel. Yeah. I'm not sure how much Alan actually understood the first Star Wars, to be honest, in terms of what was going on with the characters. You know, he clearly got some things because there's some quite interesting pickups from what happened in Star Wars and stuff that... Even the official canon stuff doesn't do particularly well, like Leia's reaction to the destruction of Alderaan. I think Alan makes a real effort to explore that, which is admirable and nice to see. But 
yeah, it's like the whole memo about Leia being quite capable, like didn't quite reach him because there are attempts to show that because she does fight for herself and defend herself. But that just feels so overshadowed by all of this infantilization and all these scenes where she needs to be rescued that it feels like that's what lingers in your mind rather than those moments where she is strong. Yeah, like you said, there are a couple of instances where they have conversations about what Tarkin and Vader did to her, uh, how it felt to lose Alderaan, and of course that isn't followed up at all in Empire or Jedi. I don't think in New Canon we get that stuff until Bloodline. Yeah. Which is obviously decades later, well overdue, but I do think Claudia Gray does a better job of it. Oh yeah. Um, But I, I appreciated that that stuff was acknowledged. Yeah. Um. But it translated into Leia fainting, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Because you, know, you just couldn't handle the thought. So if it was suggested that she might be interrogated by another Imperial, she reacted by fainting and Luke had to revive her and reassure her. And it was a bit like, really? Would Leia do that? Yeah, there's like a middle ground between treating it in that way and having her not be affected at all and having no acknowledgement of the situation. And yeah... Like, I prefer what they do in Empire and stuff because at least you can pretend that she has those thoughts internally. Like, yeah, it's just a bit silly how it is treated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just because it's helpful to have insight from the great creator himself, Alan Dean Foster, um, there's another excerpt from the Stars Newsnet interview here. So the interviewer asked him, in the book, you establish that Luke and Leia's relationship was one of unrequited love. Was this imposed by Lucasfilm? Alan, there was nothing in the first film or screenplay to indicate that they were brother and sister. In several moments, the kiss before swinging over the crevice, for example, that suggested otherwise. Everyone now realises that, that the decision to make them siblings came later. Yeah, I mean, he's right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a purely factual and correct statement. But yeah, all this sort of stuff makes the revisionist history that George Lucas sometimes engages in quite funny because he does sometimes try to say that he always intended for them to be siblings, which is a lie. I think it's maybe him massaging the truth heavily because, of course, he intended for Luke eventually to have a sister. Yeah. He just didn't. Maybe that's what he meant in that original quote at the beginning about the, the Skywalker soap opera. Yeah, that's that true. Luke's sister would turn up from the other side of the galaxy and she would also train to be a Jedi. But um, obviously that didn't happen and he melded those characters together to make Leia Organa be a Skywalker. Yeah, and it's probably best to just admit that that came later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We could all have confession time in relation to this book. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Then I will read the next part of the synopsis. Forced to keep their identities secret, Luke admonishes Leia to follow his lead, and in a nearby bar, where they take refuge, claims she is his servant girl. An old woman named Halla approaches them. While revealing little of her own background, she identifies Luke as one who is strong with the Force, and shows him a splinter of what she claims to be the Kyber Crystal, a glowing crystal that magnifies and focuses the Force, Halla strikes a deal with Luke and Leia that if they help her find it, she will help them get off the planet. They leave together. Oh, let's not forget to mention that Luke slaps Leia at this part of the story. Yeah. No, it's not pleasant at all, basically. Um, it's the opposite of pleasant, actually. It's really gross. This is like, 
is that really where your mind goes in this situation, Luke? That that's the appropriate cover story to literally slap her and physically assault her? Um, and yeah, to give more insight into what a piece of shit Luke is in this book. I'm sorry to be crude, but he just is. He's a complete asshole. I don't think that's the intention that that's the thing. Mm, yeah, no, it's so true. So we're reading it from, you know, obviously a female perspective in 2019. I, I genuinely think that Alan Dean Foster wrote him as a hero in the 1970s. I don't think we're supposed to look at it critically, which is what's so awkward. Yeah, I think we're probably used meant to find it kind of amusing. <laughs> you know, it's meant to be like, oh, what's a lark for making up such a silly story. But yeah, it doesn't play that way, at least not to us. And yeah, so basically Luke and Leia, they're in this sort of bar situation and yeah, Leia is singled out as not seeming like a very likely mine worker. And so Luke has to come up with an excuse for who she is. And this is the quote from the book. He fought furiously. No, she's, uh, I bought her. Leia twitched, stared at him a moment before returning resolutely to her food. Yes, she's a servant of mine. Spent all my earnings on her. He tried sounding different, shrugged as he returned to his eating. She's not much, of course. Her shoulders shook, but she was the best I could afford. And she's kind of amusing to have around, though she tends to get out of line at times and I have to slap her down. Which, yeah, not okay. Yeah. And of course, it is an act at this point. They're trying to cover... Um, I think the reason this happens is because Leia starts to get freaked out. She thinks that everyone is looking at them and realising they don't belong. So she says, I'm leaving. She stands up and he turns to follow her and slaps her and makes her sit down. Mm. Yeah. And then comes up with that story that she's his servant and that's why he can treat her that way. Yeah. But he doesn't really need to go so far with it. Like, oh yeah, she's not much. <laughs> it's like, lovely. Yeah, it's like he becomes very indulgent with it. It's like, do you really need to add this much detail? It's like you thought about this a lot, Luke. And <laughs> yeah, it just has really unpleasant implications. <laughs> it's like, hmm. And it's like of all the cover stories you could come up with in that situation, is that really the best one? Well, it's hard to know because Mimban as a planet does seem to be pretty much everyone there who isn't an Imperial is a minor, right? Yeah. And then you and then you have all the alien species too. But the people, they are meant to be muddy. Their hands are meant to be dirty from doing work. Mm. So she does kind of stick out like a sore thumb. But and of course they've arrived without permission. Yeah, they don't have identification. They work for the Rebel Alliance. So it's very important that they pass like un unchecked. Yeah, uh, which doesn't work out because of what happens next. But. We'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think Halla is a very interesting character who had a lot of potential. Like, sh she could have been introduced in stories after this, I think. Yeah, it's the sort of character I'd actually be quite open to seeing them reintroduce in new canon. Obviously yeah, in she's a very kind of like way. a Mars figure. Yeah. She obviously, she obviously has the Force, she recognises it in Luke, so we can kind of see that parallel with when Mars meets Rey. Yes. Um, and she introduces him to the concept of this new force power, or at least something that connects with the force, the idea of the kyber crystal, which is spelt differently from how we think of kyber in the new canon. Mm -hmm. It's K-A-I-B-U-R-R. -R. Um, and it's different from what we understand kyber crystals to be in terms of like being um, at the centre of a saber or at the centre of the Death Star. So they 
had to do a little bit of retconning there, but um, basically it's a glowing crystal that magnifies and focuses the force. So it, the core idea is there. Yes. You can see that this is obviously something that George had been working on conceptually and shared with Alan Dean Foster for the purposes of the novel. Yeah, exactly. So it's interesting to see such an early iteration of that idea being like put into this book. Like, because yeah, it really turns into a MacGuffin. Basically, is the MacGuffin of this novel, and yeah, it does become very important at the end, which we'll go into because I think that is an interesting part of the book. But yeah, it's not as entrenched in Star Wars mythology as the Kyber Crystal later comes to be. Hmm. Yeah, like I know that Kirsty has a quote explaining Luke's experience of the Kyber Crystal after he's allowed the super special and sacred opportunity to touch it. <laughs> yeah, so the the idea here is that Hallow's trying to convince them that this Kyber Crystal, because it's like this legend that they'd never heard of, um, has special powers for the Force and that it's worth them going on this mission to find it, even though she's saying that she's the one who's going to keep it. <laughs> uh, she's been wanting it for a long time. Um, but she has a little sliver of it she got from someone um, so at first Leia volunteers to touch it and <laughs> Haller is quite brutal and no this isn't for you touching it would prove nothing to you because of course in this story Leia is not force sensitive and that's kind of emphasised throughout the story So, mm. right so this is Luke when he touches it I didn't feel anything he informed her softly now utterly convinced of the old woman's sincerity I experienced it. This, and he indicated the fragment of red mineral, increases one's perception of the force. It magnifies and clarifies, in proportion to its size and density, I think. He gazed hard at Haller. Anyone in possession of the entire crystal, if it's much larger than this fragment, would have such a lock on the force that he could do almost anything. Anything at all. And of course it's a he. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Even though Haller's the one saying that she wants it, right? Because it's, it's very clear right from the beginning that Haller also has the force. That's how she spots Luke. She senses that he has the power. And she's like, I need help to find this crystal. Yeah. No, she's pretty smart. She has a good strategy. Yeah. And yeah, this is interesting. This is just one of the rare examples of mysticism in this book. Because, yeah, throughout is very much... It's surprisingly physical and tangible, everything. Like, Luke's accomplishments, they're not accomplishments of his interior self or his soul. They're very much accomplishments of kill the monster, defeat the thing, get through the creepy cave. You know, and it's all very, very literal. And it's usually about violence and showing that you're the strongest person. So it's always striking in this book when something like this occurs. And you're like, oh yeah, there is this mystical element to this world. Yeah, again, comparing it to Empire, uh, it is very different, like you say, in terms of conceptualising what the Force should be used for, if it should be used for anything, uh, what the Force can flow through, how people Force-sensitive and apparently not can feel it, um, because the idea here is that Leia would be able to feel nothing. And yeah, comparing it to the, the rest of the journey that Luke goes on in the original trilogy, because that's... Of course he does slay monsters... But he's also on a very much inward emotional journey. Yeah. Especially where Vader's concerned. And, of course, we don't get any of that here. <laughs> Vader's in the story. But uh, I've got to say that the front cover art is quite misleading in terms of what it leads you to think the core focus of the story is about. 
Oh, yeah. Because Vader's... Vader really enters the story pretty much last minute. Yeah, he's, he's <laughs> we'll, only we'll in get the last later, few chapters. Spoilers. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to it, but it's it's not quite what I was expecting. Yeah. No, it's surprising. And when he does arrive, he's depicted in an interesting way. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay, cool. Would you care to read out the next excerpt, Kirsty? So the synopsis, yeah. Yeah. A minor squabble between Luke and Leia attracts the attention of local miners emerging from the pub. The miners claim that fighting in public is against Imperial law, and they all get into a brawl. Imperial stormtroopers intervene and take Luke, Leia, and the miners to the local jail. They are questioned by Captain Supervisor Grammel, who discovers and confiscates the crystal shard along with Luke's weapons. Luke and Leia are placed in a maximum security cell with two drunk but friendly Yuzum hairy Aboriginal characters called Hin and Key. Grammel reports the incident and gives the crystal shard to Governor Bin Asada in charge of the group of star systems including Sakapus. So basically, they come out of the pub they start arguing because Leia's obviously kind of pissed off. <laughs> One, she doesn't quite trust Halla, whereas Luke is very trusting because as soon as he touches the crystal he's like, oh she was telling the truth. Mm. Whereas Leia obviously can't sense that and she thinks that they're being used by the old lady and she just wants to get off the planet and back to what they were originally supposed to be doing. So they attract attention. These miners are also creepy towards Leia. <laughs> People can't help themselves. Oh, and did we mention the mud rustling? Well, I was going to say, so it's not just that Luke and Leia start arguing. They actually start fighting in the mud <laughs> and Leia's clothes kind of come off. <laughs> or at least undone. You could tell that Alan Dean was thinking about the cinematic effect of this. It's like, oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Funny how Luke's clothes managed to stay intact. <laughs> yeah. I want equal opportunity clothes falling off, please. <laughs> or no clothes falling off. <laughs> Leia became aware of the miners' stairs. Several buckles and straps on the tight-fitting clothes had come undone while she'd been wrestling with Luke. <laughs> Despite the coating of mud over them, their exposed areas were drawing an uncomfortable amount of attention. She felt as if something was crawling all over her under her clothing. <laughs> Isn't that gross? It's horrible. Like, so much of this book. In a fascinating it's, way. <laughs> it's really broadcasting, this is not for girls, it's for boys. Yeah unfortunately like the heteronormativity here and casual sexism is just unbelievable and it goes on it's not just these isolated things it's like a real through line through the story yeah it's very consistent (laughs) (laughs) you've got to give him that he's very consistent with it he commits Mm. he commits to this yeah it's really horrible basically there's not so subtle indications that these like ruffians basically want to like assault layer basically It's, it's horrible it's like, come here and let me apprehend you. He reached out a massive paw. <laughs> yeah, and just the sorts of language that these, like, ruffians slash miners use is horrible. Like, little mud hen, I'll put more than a hand on you. It's just like, oh, do we really have to do this? Mm. It's like, again, because of the type of book this is and the context in which it was written, yes, we do have to do this, but... Of course we do, because then Luke has to defend Leia's honour and be the hero who cuts off someone's hand. Um, Which in itself I did appreciate, because it's obviously kind of paralleling what Ben Kenobi did at the cantina. Um, It foreshadows Luke doing the same to Vader at the end of the story. Yeah. 
but it's just the reason for him having to do that it's very like i'll save you yeah exactly and it's very gratuitous violence i find it quite well written violence but it's very extreme yeah like cutting off limbs and everything and yeah it's cut there's something troubling about all this violence always being triggered by some sort of threat to layer again it's just like this heteronormative like fantasy basically and yeah it's like this bizarre fascinating insight into a completely different type of mind because <laughs> of course even in the next part when they they do get dragged off by the imperial troopers taken to the jail and they meet this captain supervisor Grimmel, he is equally gross to layer like it's just relentless yeah even Halla is even when they first meet Halla, she's like pretty girl pretty lady that's how she talks to leia <laughs> so even even the female character is like that yeah it's just it has to be noted that leia is physically attractive yeah like there's so little emphasis on her as a leader and her as this like political figure it is just about her as this desirable person basically that has far more influence on the plot and is much more of a motivator for the plot than yeah her status which is bizarre she could really craft a much more interesting story around this woman being this figurehead of this movement you know and what does that do when that comes out and stuff but it doesn't go there at all (laughs) Mm -hmm. so when they meet Grimmel, they've heard about him at that point. He already has a reputation for being really, really horrible and everyone's scared of him. Mm-hmm. So Luke's like, okay, well, let's see what's so scary about him. And I don't think that Luke is really that scared of him. Because, <laughs> again, there's this other weird thing where, like, these characters who are meant to be baddies are all kind of described as overweight or paunchy, mm. which is pretty gross because it's clearly trying to associate that with negative personality traits yeah so he, i think there's a bit where like Grimmel stands up from behind his desk and looks like oh he's overweight like i'm not scared of him <laughs> he's not at peak physical performance like me <laughs> there's no way he can have a pure soul <laughs> yeah it's bad and yeah they do make a show of making Grimmel really really horrible again although in a way it's sort of a bit disingenuous because they display how horrible Grimmel is by having him like just completely randomly inflict violence on these prisoners that they have like not Luke and Leia but the ruffians and I, I'm sorry I keep on saying the word ruffians I've committed and I can't leave it behind now <laughs> but yeah when I was reading that part where I was describing what Grimmel was doing I was just thinking, really, this is what Luke just did. But what Luke did was more extreme. I think he might have killed at least one of them. Mm. And yeah, like, I'm not sure who has the moral high ground in this situation. I, <laughs> I don't think it's Luke. Yeah, it's well, it's obviously intended to be Luke. Of course. But yeah. again, it's something that's not really challenged by the narrative. Um, yeah, and again, the way... That's what's interesting about the way... I'm going to keep talking about it the way characters treat Leia because they're all kind of gross towards her but guess what Luke's also kind of gross towards her oh yeah he, he's often the most gross to be honest <laughs> it's like... but it's not it's not really acknowledged that way it's meant to be like oh no his love is pure everyone else is just creeping yeah exactly his love is unrequited and while it's a huge struggle he can just about keep control of himself so that makes it okay 
and he'll defend her against himself. <laughs> the ultimate hero. <laughs> so the idea is they meet Grimmel and basically have to continue lying about who they are, right? Mm, um, yeah. And he is not believing their story. So he throws them in jail and is like, okay, well, if if I go and check that you are who you say you are and we come back with information, then I'll let you go. But if not, uh, well, there'll be consequences. It's like a thinly veiled threat. Like, they're probably going to get tortured or killed, basically. Yeah. And at this point, it's also worth saying how, like, small fry this whole story feels. It doesn't feel remotely grand in scope. You know, like, when you watch Empire, you get the sense that the fate of the whole galaxy is being covered in this narrative, basically. Right, because at this point, Grimmel doesn't even know that they're uh, they're rebels. Yeah, exactly. So he just thinks they're petty criminals, and he's like, okay, well, something's not adding up here, but they're lying to me. So it really is quite a small story in scope, as you say. It's just like this random Imperial guy on this random planet that they happen to have landed on. And now they're in trouble. They're going to be trapped physically in this jail cell. Yeah. And Vader um, shows up so late, it almost feels like an afterthought at that point. And <laughs> again, it doesn't feel big. It just feels like him chasing them around a little bit. But I'm going to shut up because we're going to go into that more. <laughs> so yeah, Grimmel does his typical being gross to lay a bit. Uh, he stared back at her, ran a finger down one cheek. Pretty woman. She twitched out of his grip. Spirited, too. He looked at Luke. I congratulate you on your taste, boy. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Leia glared at him. But what else could he have said? Yeah, indeed. What else could Luke have done? <laughs> what a hero. Thanks, sir. <laughs> you do have great taste. Yeah, he's bloody sexy, right? Yeah. So they get thrown in this jail cell and um, the Yuzum basically seem to be like an alternative to a, a Wookiee. Oh yeah, that's right? what I thought. I was like, why not just yeah. make them Wookiees? <laughs> it's a way why? of having Chewie in the story without Chewie being in the story. Yeah. Those characters, like you have to use the word character so loosely because they're just muscle. That is the only purpose they serve, basically. Um, Luke can magically speak their language. <laughs> Cough, Gary Stu. Yeah. It's an issue when Ray can do it, but Luke's fine. Yeah. And the excuse they give for it, like in terms of how Luke came to learn the language, is so tenuous in this book. It's just such complete bullshit. <laughs> I was just like, I'm sorry, but Ray at least living in an actual outpost that had lots of people from different worlds that's a much more reasonable situation in which to pick up some different languages. And yeah, it's just stupid. Yeah, it's just very much not a concern of the story. Luke's just able to do everything, which is fine because it's that kind of story, but... It doesn't stand up well to scrutiny, essentially. Well, it's just funny given the discourse in fandom. It's obviously... There are very much double standards. (laughs) Very much. Oh yeah, we do also have the whole, um, I know this is backtracking slightly, but Luke thinking about Grommel and he assesses regular humans as vapid vacuums, which ties into what we were saying before about Luke having a very low opinion of non-force users. Yeah, this is just so, this is one of the most interesting parts of the book for me, because obviously, yeah, like you say, it comes up a couple times and it just seems so polar opposite to how George went on in Empire to explain the Force via Yoda. You know, it's in every tree, every rock. The Force is everywhere. It's all around us. It's an energy that binds us together. 
uh, everyone can feel it to an extent and it's within all of us um but luke's like yeah looking down on characters that don't have the force and maybe he doesn't consciously feel that way about leia because she's pretty and he has a crush on her but it should apply to leia if it applies to these other characters yeah and yeah it's just kind of gross and it's so anti-ethical to what seems to be one of the core messages of the saga as we now know it that yeah i just read this version of luke and so often i find myself thinking i don't like you (laughs) you're a bad person thinking of people who don't have the force as normal implying that he's not normal he's special and that they're vapid vacuums yeah that's terrible it's sort of framed as okay because he's thinking that in relation to Grammel, who's obviously this villainous character yeah but leia's right there yeah no exactly and it's even though it's about Grammel, it's also about just all humans who don't have the force mm-hmm. and yeah it's like yeah you don't deserve to be a hero in this story luke <laughs> you're really someone mere like a mortals. villain <laughs> they are mere mortals and he is a a god amongst men. <laughs> he deserves everything, goddammit. Yeah. There's also a moment here, which I'm going to really, really make a reach, but <laughs> whatever. Okay, do it. Um, so obviously they're having to like make up a story to Grimmel and um, Luke basically has to pretend that Leia, he says, she means nothing to me. <laughs> I'm just going to pretend that that's a Ben Solo parallel. <laughs> You've got to take it where you find it. Go of for course, it. He, he says that he means nothing to me in relation to Han Solo, his father, in The Force Awakens. But there's also this idea in The Last Jedi, of course, that he has to prove to his master that he doesn't care about Rey. Yeah. So. Stoles is full of characters denying their feelings, basically. Yeah, it's like a standard trope, right? Where he has to pretend that he doesn't care about the girl, but then at the last second has to admit that he does because she might be hurt. Yeah. Yeah, it's Grimmel using Leia to get to the information that Luke has. And of course, being a man, Luke needs to demonstrate his perfect control and stoicism because that's what <laughs> men men do. Yeah. So he doesn't buy their story, he throws them in jail and they're they're in there with these wookie like creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is it in the jail cell that Leia has that recall of the interrogation? I think it must be because she wouldn't have that in front of Grimmel, right? I don't think so. She certainly wouldn't faint in front of him. I don't remember that happening. So they've been thrown in the jail cell, but um, Grimmel's still there talking. Right. Um, and I think this is when his suspicion really starts to get to to get to him because he's like, well, why would that bother you so much that I'm, I'm contacting Imperials? Like, who are you? Mm. And Luke's like, take it easy, Leia. It might not mean anything. Um, and she says, Imperial governors don't take an interest in common thieves, Luke. She whispered tightly. Something was clutching at her throat. I'll be interrogated again. Like that time. That time. She broke away, threw herself up against the back wall of the cell. That time back on the Death Star. Small black worms crawled through her brain. Another governor's demands. The now dead Grand Moff Tarkin. The machine drifting into her holding cell. The remorseless black machine. Illegal concocted by twisted imperial scientists in defiance of every code, legal and moral. It drifted over to her, moved down, metal limbs preparing to perform efficiently, emotionlessly, in response to inhuman programming. Screaming, screaming, 
screaming never to stop she was. Something hit her hard. She blinked, turned to see Luke looking at her worried. She slid down to sit up against the wall. So she's having a really hard time because obviously she's basically been threatened with torture again because during that time that they were in the cell, Grimmel called his superior. Can't remember his name. Is it Governor Asada? Oh, something like that. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, tells him what's happened with these two random people showing up. Uh, Asada seems suspicious and like demands that he show him video evidence, and he does. And of course, they recognize Leia. They don't recognize Luke, but they think if they're together, he must be important. Mm. He won't tell Grimmel why. He just insists that they keep them alive and captive yeah. until someone else gets there. So then we know that someone else is eventually going to be on their way to Mimban. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, it's interesting because Gr- Grimmel goes back to the cell and he starts demanding that they tell him because he couldn't get any information about them from Asada, but he wants the information so that he can use it to his own advantage. Exactly, yeah. Grimmel very much seems like a petty civil servant type who is frustrated by his low position and his low rank and he wants more and he feels like these two might be the key towards like getting a promotion or getting moved to a more interesting position something like that so yeah again it's a very typical arc for a villainous character god the description of leia having that flashback is very brutal and yeah it is one of the things i've appreciate the book form because yeah as we've discussed it's something that isn't covered at all in the original trilogy films and yeah it's nice to see an effort because it is something that comes up repeatedly and Foster does use it to create something of a through line for her and you can have a debate about how successful that through line is and how satisfying the resolution is spoiler I don't think it's very satisfying but he tries he does try to give her something of substance beyond just being pretty girl Um, so yeah I did appreciate the attempt even though the execution left stuff to be desired yeah so a few pages later when Grimmel's walked off Luke turns around um a moan and the princess reached out towards Luke. He caught her hands and she opened her eyes in surprise. An uncertain glance, then she saw the huge-eyed Hin staring at her curiously. That's one of the creatures. I'm sorry, Luke, he helped her to her feet. The thought of going through an imperial interrogation again. I lost control. So, yeah, she fainted. <laughs> Which, it's it's complicated because it's like, on the one hand, I'm happy that they, they did bring it up and acknowledged it as like a real trauma for Leia, but... It's very damsel in distress, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, I agree, you're also a bit mixed. I don't want to say she can't have some sort of extreme physical reaction to that trauma, you know, because that's an extreme trauma. I don't want to say how you would or wouldn't react. But, yeah, it's just because of how it's used in the narrative and how it fits into that overall picture of Leia, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, cool. Would you like to read out the next part of the synopsis, Kirsty, which is quite a longer one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Halla, with Luke's help, uses the Force to help rescue Luke, Leia, and the two Yuzum. The Yuzum r- rampage through the jail barracks while Luke and Leia escape. The four meet Halla and the droids to find the Temple of Pomajima, which Halla believes to be the location of the Kyber Crystal. They travel through the swampy wilds of Mimban, during which they encounter a Wandrella, a huge worm-like creature. The Wandrella p- pursues them, 
forcing them to leave the transport and splitting Luke and Leia apart from Halla, the droids, and the Yuzum. Luke and Leia hide in a well down which the Wanderella falls, leaving the two trapped as it destroys their escape path. From the lip of the well, Halla suggests that there must be an escape route underground, at the end of which she will rejoin them with the others. Luke and Leia's underground journey involves floating across a lake on lily pads and fending off creatures of the deep with Luke's lightsaber. <laughs> on the other side of the lake, they encounter the secretive residents of the caves, the Cowway, who have captured Halla, the droids, and the Yuzum. To save his friends, Luke defeats the Cowway's champion fighter and thus befriends the entire tribe. At a tribal banquet, Luke senses Vader and Cowway patrols confirm his feelings. Imperials, led by Darth Vader and Captain Supervisor Grimmel, are approaching the underground cave. So this section of the synopsis actually takes us through quite a huge chunk of the book because a lot of it is them just like making this physical journey through the caverns, being separated from Halla and the droids. And yeah, lots of creatures getting into danger, yeah. having to go across the water, even though Leia can't swim, so she's really afraid. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, meeting these uh, other aliens who are like humanoid, but very different from the Yuzum and from the Greenies, who were like these weird... Uh, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe them. <laughs> Creatures who were like very subservient to humans who were kind of there at the beginning when they were in the bar, who were like licking people's boots for money and food. It was gross. Uh, oh God, yeah, I remember that. I'd managed to suppress yeah. that. Wow. Anyway, these creatures, like, they basically have their entire underground civilization. They don't really interact with the humans. Yeah. So, so when Luke shows up, it's like you have to defeat them. So he has to, like, yeah, fight their champion fighter. Uh, he does eventually win. Just touch and go there for a second. It's very dramatic. And then, yeah, to celebrate at the end, because he earns their respect, they have to stay for a feast. He doesn't want to. He actually wants to get off the planet as quickly as possible. But Halla's like, uh, no, you have to stay. You're going to really insult them if you don't. And then while they're eating, uh, Luke stands up and senses Vader. Of course he would. <laughs> Did the Kawei remind you of Ewoks? Did it say they were furry? Um, I think it might have. But for me, the remember. main thing was this whole idea of it's like a primitive species and lots of describing of their like savage and primitive ways and they're gradually won over by our amazing heroes and they all sit down friendly-like and then the baddies come. So I guess they have like spears and axes and stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's very clear that they have their own customs completely separate from whoever is living on the surface of the planet. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're just not concerned with like the Empire or the humans mining on the surface. It's just they have got their own stuff going on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, because of the connections forged through Luke defeating their fighter and, and then bonding with them through the banquet... When the Imperials show up, including Grimmel and, of course, Vader, they work with them to take down the troopers. Yeah, which is nice. And again, another sort of precursor to what happens in Return of the Jedi. So mm -hmm. that whole species and the underground adventure, I did like that part. And for me, it was one of the more enjoyable parts. It's also one of the ones where there's less to say, I think, which is why there's such a long part of the synopsis with fewer notes. 
Yeah, just because there's less of that golden material to discuss in terms of all the weirdo parts. Uh, there's still lots of strange stuff that we will go into. But yeah, a lot of it is more straightforward, describing the setting and describing the action. And yeah, did it strike you, Kirsty, when they were constantly like trying to kill and attack all these monsters? I, I really feel like we need to sit these people down and show them episodes of Forces of Destiny. <laughs> yeah, it was very different from how I think of Star Wars. Like you say, very plot driven, really nothing in the way of character development. And I think this would have actually been a good time for that because going across that lake on the water and that, there, there were basically they described the passage of time as they're out there for hours maybe even like in a whole day just passing across this lake it's a big lake yeah so luke and leia could have had time for some really intense conversations um they could have challenged luke's worldview in some way challenged layers there could have been personal growth but it really there wasn't any yeah and it would have been so easy to do something like make luke the one who's afraid of the water not leia I thought they were going to go there because he seems uneasy at first. Yeah, and they make the whole point about him having grown up on a sand planet, which is very logical, but yeah, they don't pursue it. Yeah, there's the really weird moment at the end where... Oh, because because there are these random creatures, like, falling from the cave uh, ceiling to, like, attack them. Mm. Luke, of course, defeats them with his lightsaber. And then they're just over by the other edge of the water. They've just made it. And there's this really strange moment where Leia looks at him and without warning just like screams. And he's like, wait, what? what's going on? She's like, oh, I'm sorry. I just really didn't want to get back into the water. <laughs> so he has to carry her to shore. <laughs> and it's just like, it, it seems like she's screaming for no reason at first. It's like, wait, what? The threat is over. They've defeated the creature. But she's just like, oh no, I just, I really don't want to go in the water. I can't swim. It's so feeble. It's very it's bad. It's funny. It is funny. Yeah. She just screams at him. Because obviously the only reason why that happened is to give the excuse for Luke to have that physical contact with her and pursue that intimacy. <laughs> so it's like, oh, she's got to be all weak and vulnerable towards him. Do you think he's like bridal carrying her to shore? <laughs> That was my vision. That's, yeah, yeah, that's what it seemed like to me, which is, yeah, it's funny. They're kind of trying to awkwardly shove in all of these tropes. <laughs> Bless. <laughs> yeah, no, it's very cute. Um, no, actually, not really. It's kind of horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it's just hilarious because it is like, uh, I don't have the quote, but it's it seems like a completely bizarre reaction to Leia. Like, it's, like, it's not even like she's reacting to anything. The threat is over, as I said. He turns around and she just screams in his face and then is like, oh, sorry, I just can't swim. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very mature way of handling the situation. And it's certainly not the way you'd expect a political leader to conduct themselves over such a thing. But... Yeah. Hey-ho. I will say, coming back to how the um, the story portrays the greenies who were like the subservient aliens with no dignity at the beginning of the book uh, which kind of reminded me of like the cantina Mm. and then the Kalway who like you say could be paralleled with the Ewoks like their own civilization their own customs not concerned with human activity 
I do like that this story introduces some themes that become pretty prevalent throughout Star Wars canon. Yeah. Like the subjugation of alien species by humans, especially under Imperial rule. Yeah. Because you don't really get any of that in Star Wars, do you? Yeah. It all comes later. No, that's true. Like, um, there is a surprising amount of political context to this book in terms of hierarchies and what the... I, I keep being tempted to say First Order, but obviously we're not in that area yet. Um, and like what the Empire is getting up to, essentially. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. And it is one of the advantages of the book that it does explore this sort of stuff. And yeah, I, I'm very curious to know, to be honest, if George Lucas ever read this book. Oh, surely he did. Do you not, do you not think he did? I think it's possible he didn't. Oh my God, that's hilarious. <laughs> But I thought the idea was that this could be turned into a movie, or I guess by the oh, by the point it was published, he was already working on Empire because it had been a success. Yeah, no, so exactly. We don't need you anymore, Alan Dean Foster. <laughs> I do kind of sense that that might have happened, though. I don't think he wrote the novelization for Empire. Oh no, I don't think he did either. Yeah, but he came back for the Force Awakens, so so he clearly rebuilt those bridges after all the hurt <laughs> and pain of the rejection of Splinter of the Mind's Eye was overcome. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure he was alright. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure that anyone watching Empire Strikes Back and even if you'd written the damn book, I think you'd be like, yeah, that's better. <laughs> so much better. <sighs> um, yeah, and one of the most interesting things to occur in this part of the book is that we get some insight into Leia's motives for joining the Rebellion. Um, yeah. Which is one of the few like insights we get in the book into her thought process and thinking. So I found this interesting, but again, its relationship with canon is all sorts of funky. So would you like to read it out, Kirsty? Yeah. Um, just before this quote, actually, she's talking about how when she was living in her father's palace, <laughs> which of course is very different to how they also chose to go in canon with old Iranian matrilineal culture. Yes. Um, which... Yeah, I much prefer, because this counts as Brea Organa disrespect, in my opinion. Oh yeah, no, 100%. Uh, not, not that Alan Dean Foster could have known, but I love Bale, but yeah. Brea is queen, okay? And again, it's an assumption, <laughs> isn't it, that, oh, yeah. her father is clearly the king. So. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so, this is Leia talking to Luke. That's one of the things that's so wrong with the Empire, Luke, she commented enthusiastically. Its art has grown as decadent as the government. Both suffer from a lack of creative vitality. That's what originally drew me to the Alliance, not politics. Politically, I was probably almost as naive as you. <laughs> when I was living in my father's palace, I was utterly bored, Luke. Examination of why I found nothing entertaining led me to discover how the Empire had stifled any original thought. Long-established totalitarian governments fear any kind of expression. A sculpture can be a manifesto. A manuscripted adventure can double as a cry for rebellion. From corrupt aesthetics to corrupt politics was a smaller step than most people around me realised. <laughs> it just sounds so artificial and unnatural. You know what it reminds me of? Thrawn? No, <laughs> but actually, good point. Yeah. Obviously talking about art. Yeah. But it reminded me in terms of Alan Dean Foster's writing of uh, Kylo's monologue to Metaka in the Force Awakens novelization. Oh my god, yes, I'd forgotten that. That's so beautiful. Wow. Yeah. So like mother like son. Yeah. Wow, that's they just classic. Love the sound of their own voice. 
<laughs> Let me educate you here, Luke, because you are super naive. And I was almost as naive as you. Can you imagine? <laughs> I did appreciate it, to be honest, because there was so much mansplaining in this book. Where Luke is like, excuse me, princess. And is like telling her how things are or whatever. So actually getting it the other way around where Leia is dropping some truth bombs on him. And he just has to sit there stupidly and listen to her. I appreciated mm. that. Yeah, it's obviously very different from how we understand Leia's relationship to politics in canon now. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it kind of makes sense for a teenage girl to get involved because it impacts something well to anyone really but in terms of art if that's something that she was really interested in creatively and then she was looking at what was around her and not feeling inspired and then realized it was because people's freedom of speech and expression had been suppressed yeah um i can relate to that because if you're someone who had been living this life of privilege in her father's palace as she notes Mm. um she might not have seen the direct impacts um economically um oh yeah no 100 percent. so that's how it reaches her essentially yeah although it's so interesting because this backstory for her it suggests that her father the king like was not all that concerned like it doesn't seem like it was a conversation that was had um in that household it seems like something that leia very much came to on her own whereas in canon it's a question of her parents were actively involved in the rebellion and Leia discovered that and then got involved sort of through them or inspired by them, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I suppose all there is to go on in the first Star Wars is her sending the message to Obi-Wan Kenobi and so saying, years ago, you served my father. Yes. Which plays in, again, to the idea of Bail being the royal. Although, of course, we know that he was senator and in that capacity, General Kenobi served him. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't quite line up in the same way. Yeah. No, so it's an interesting alternate history for the character. Yep. Okay, then I will read out the next part of the synopsis. When the Imperials arrive, they are surprised by the Kawaii tribe's power and bravery. Vader and Grimmel retreat with the handful of surviving stormtroopers, though Vader loses patience with Grimmel for the, for the defeat and kills him. Luke and company steal an Imperial transport left behind and begin travelling to the temple. They beat Vader to the temple and find the kyber crystal. They encounter a monster, of course, and unsuccessfully <laughs> try to fight it off with blasters. Luke tells Hid and Key to get some rifles. Luke cuts down one of the pillars holding up the temple, crushing the monster. Luke's leg is pinned under a fa- fallen boulder. Darth Vader then enters the temple of Pomajima, announcing that he killed Hin and Key. Leia takes up Luke's lightsaber and begins fighting Darth Vader, but he toys with her, giving her multiple superficial burns with his own lightsaber. Hin, mortally wounded, shows up and, in his dying act, lifts the big rock off of Luke's leg. Luke fights Vader, showing more skill than expected, deflecting some force-based attacks and eventually slicing off Vader's arm. Despite this, the Sith Lord seems about to win, but then falls into a pit! Luke senses that Vader is still alive. As the story ends, Leia and Luke, healed by the crystal, drive off with Halla into the mists of Mimban. <laughs> so yeah, this is I our can't epic get over this. ending. I know. <laughs> it is so anticlimactic. I was reading it and laughing. <laughs> I had to go back and check. Like, I, had, I read the page where Vader falls down the well 
and I had to go back and check that that is indeed what happened because it seemed so ridiculous yeah and and it's hilarious it also like ends on this like comedic note with like um I think C-3PO being like why do I have the impression that everyone is laughing at me yeah and oh and also the part where so uh, I think this synopsis doesn't quite cover it but um once Vader is gone although of course Luke senses that he's still alive for another day it's very cartoony that way um he heals himself and then Leia uh and then Leia wakes up and she's like oh I've got a headache and him and Halla just like cackle about that. Like it's really <laughs> funny to them because it's like you were almost dead later, but sure, complain about having a headache. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's just so much bizarre stuff going on in this um, ending. I can't believe Vader falls down a well. <laughs> That's how they defeat him. Like a pussycat <laughs> down the well. It is just so, so insanely ridiculous. It's like, come on. Yeah, because again, coming back to the idea of having this Ralph Macquarie cover art, you think that this confrontation between Luke, Leia and Vader is going to be like crucial to the plot of the story. But really, it's just like tacked on to the end. Yeah. He's like he's like the big boss they, they need to defeat. And obviously very... He basically does defeat them. And if he hadn't fallen down the well, they'd both be dead. But luckily he does. So then they still have the crystal that heals them. And uh, then they can just make their escape and magically get off Mimbin at that point, even though <laughs> I'm still not clear how that happens. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like a massive anticlimax, as you said. Um, although there are some good parts here, which I think we'll get to. But yeah, this whole part of the story, like when Leia realises that Vader is close at hand, she has another one of her moments of womanly despair and panic. And um, she goes, if it should come to that, Luke. And then Luke, being a dumbass, is like, come to what? Being taken alive. He indicated understanding. And she went on, promise me that out of any feeling you have for the rebellion, out of any feeling you might have for me, that you'll put that sabre at your hip to my throat. Luke stared at her uncomfortably. Leia, I <laughs> swear it, she demanded, her voice that of a steel kitten. <laughs> steel kitten. I want Alan Dean Foster to show me a steel kitten and help me understand why that is a useful piece of imagery to use in that context, because I'm not seeing it. That she's being feisty and cute, but also strong. <laughs> That's such a good reaction. I, I don't have such a problem with Leia asking him to do this, because, of course, if she was taken and interrogated, she has valuable information. Yes. So she doesn't want to put the rebellion at risk. Yeah. But again, it's about, like, oh, Leia could die, and Luke would have to do the heroic thing of killing her. Yeah, exactly. And it's always about Luke's man pain, of course. It's not... <laughs> And it's never really stressed about why she's actually doing that. And it does seem more like a moment of giving up, you know, on Leia's part and a moment of weakness for her rather than a thing of strength, you know? Mm. And again, it might just be the overall depiction of her is making me think that way. But yeah, I don't know. It just didn't seem right somehow. Yeah. There are some really 
comic elements to this whole section <laughs> because aside from Vader falling down the well, when Vader first turns up, Luke has to shout to get his attention. He says, Vader, Darth Vader, <laughs> I- I'm over here. Come and get me. <laughs> it's like, you have to get his attention that way. Why is that so funny to me? Like, there's just it is funny. no, yeah, there's no mysticism of them connecting through the force, despite the fact that Vader sensed him there. And that's why he's arrived in the first place. But Luke has to yell at him like across the battle. And then Vader's like, oh, 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 there he is. Okay, that's where I'm going. Yeah. And it surprised me that there was no attempt in this book to make that relationship between Luke and Vader remotely personal or emotional. Because in the original Star Wars, we learned from Obi-Wan telling Luke that Darth Vader murdered Luke's father. You know, so there's that history, but that is not acknowledged here, basically. Yeah, there's the bit that Vader's like, I killed Ben Kenobi, because there's this weird moment where Ben... Well, Luke seems to be, like, channeling Ben, or at least he thinks he is. So he's like, I am Ben Kenobi. Yeah. And and Vader's like, no, I killed him. <laughs> so not that's really. Kind of the closest, <laughs> that's kind of the closest we get. Um, but yeah, like you say, comparing it to Empire again, I mean, you can't compare it because there's no intimate connection between the characters. There's no raising of the stakes. Vader very much stays a cartoon villain. Um, yeah he's very much Saturday morning cartoon levels in this story basically yeah like the way he's described as leisurely walking um, he has a coldly conversational tone (laughs) Vader's voice dropped to a toxic whisper Uh, how would that even work yeah (laughs) can Vader whisper yeah no again it's bizarre and it doesn't match up with what we know of how the character sounds and again like this reinforces my opinion that alan dean foster might well have not even seen the movie so he didn't understand how vader was going to sound and Mm. yeah he thus came up with these descriptions that really don't make much sense that's true um but yeah for me the most interesting aspect of this whole sequence and the highlight is that Leia gets an opportunity to duel Vader with a lightsaber, um, mm-hmm. which is interesting on several layers. Um, <laughs> for Leia, it's interesting on several layers. <laughs> um, yeah, would you like to read out the excerpt I've highlighted? Sure. Do you remember that day back on the station, Vader mused with deliberate patience, when the late Governor Tarkin and I interviewed you? He placed a peculiar stress on the word interviewed. Leia had both hands on opposite shoulders and was shivering as if from intense cold. Yes, Vader observed, perverse amusement in his voice. I can see that you do. I am truly sorry I have nothing as elaborate to treat you to at this time. However, he added, swinging his weapon lightly, one can do some interesting things with a sabre, you know. I'll do my best to show you all of them, if you'll cooperate by not passing out. Leia's hands dropped to her sides. The fear did not leave her, but she forced it into the back alleys of her mind by sheer will. Running the few steps to Luke's side, she knelt and groped at his wrist. When she rose, she was holding the lightsaber carefully in one hand. Vader looked on approvingly. You're going to fight? Good. That will make it interesting. She spat at the advancing giant, a pitifully feeble gesture as she brandished the lightsaber. The force give me leave to kill you before I die, she snarled. An awful coughing laugh issued from behind the gargoyle breath mask. 
Foolish infant, the force is with me, not you. But, he shrugged amiably. (laughs) We will see. He assumed a position of readiness. Come, girl woman, amuse me. Can you imagine Vader coughing and laughing and shrugging his shoulders? Amiably, amiably, Kirsty. Looking on approvingly as if you could tell. <laughs> Again, it's like, yeah, you haven't seen the film, have you, Alan? <laughs> have you even Swing, seen a picture? Swinging around his lightsaber. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. Um, and yeah, like, girl woman. It would be like me saying to you, like, come, lady female. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the idea is that Vader is particularly sexist because he's a bad guy. It's like, well, you see, Luke might not be a complete paragon, but compare him to Vader. See? Like, again, I know that's not what Alan Dean is doing, but... It's like, oh no. Yeah, it's just so incredibly different from how we read Vader and Leia and Luke now but yeah it's funny if this were on archive of our own as a fan fiction in the summary i would expect to see liberal use of ooc out of mm-hmm. character because everyone yeah. is wildly out of character <laughs> <laughs> oh i had i have to note sorry that even when describing leia reacting to vader's reappearance because he disappears for a while and then comes back uh he had <laughs> Alan Dean Foster has to describe her perfect lips. <laughs> oh god. Did you remember that yes. Leia looks perfect oh. at all times? Yeah, yeah. Of course. The perfect lips is very important to the narrative. <laughs> and that's a strange thing because when you're describing it and Luke is not part of the action, it's like, is this for Vader's benefit? <laughs> is this for the reader's benefit? Who is perceiving her as having perfect lips right now? Yeah, that's what's so interesting about this style of writing. It's like if you include those descriptions, it's got to be from someone's perspective. But who does Vader? Is he looking at Leia's perfect lips? I think it's that perspective of God, aka Alan (sighs) Dean, and the teenage boy is reading it. Yeah, he's like, oh, perfect lips. Yeah, and then there's one more segment from the Stars Newsnet interview that I thought was relevant here. Um, and they asked, when Leia uses Luke's lightsaber in Splinter, did you already know that she could be related somehow to a Jedi? Alan Dean. No, definitely not. I did Leia. I, I had Leia use it because I have always been a strong supporter of the strengthening of women. <laughs> um, from the beginning, Leia was never the typical princess in distress who needed to be rescued. She has always been able to take care of herself. So when Luke is injured in Splinter of the Mind's Eye, she used the only weapon which was at hand in trying to defend both of them. Yeah, that's definitely what she does. But yeah, it's interesting to me. So I think it represents a very typical masculine perspective where we're going to show strength by having the woman fight without any engagement with how you might strengthen a woman and make her more powerful and engaging as a character by making her more complex because yeah there's not that much of engagement with that Mm. reading this part of the story it did remind me in a way of finn using the lightsaber in the force awakens oh yeah no there's quite a few parallels of that actually there's also a scene where the lightsaber is tossed and people are trying to summon the lightsaber through the force and that sort of thing so yeah, there's a lot of resemblance to that final fight scene in 
The Force Awakens. Mm-hmm. Although Leia seems to get much more scarred than Finn does. Yeah. Because he obviously has the line that goes up his back from Kylo. Um, and he does pass out. But I think the idea here is that Leia would die if they didn't have the kyber crystal there to heal her. Yeah, like I was a bit ambiguous on that, to be honest. I wasn't sure she actually died and was then brought back to life, or if she was just like on the verge of death. Luke describes his experience as death. Wow. Um, so I would guess that both of them did, but yeah. I mean, she's completely out, and then she comes back and describes the headache that she has, and that's funny in comparison to what she actually had going on so yeah it just doesn't seem very proportionate basically yeah just the descriptions of how vader continues to burn her repeatedly all over her body it's really gross yeah it's a bit torture porny isn't it yeah it's like god are we reading a star wars novelization or the novelization of a saw film well that's another thing about the general tone of this book it does end on a hopeful note and that they get off the planet and they seem to be in relatively high spirits considering but there are parts, you know, Leia has a really quite cynical outlook on the galaxy. Yeah. Which isn't surprising because this is coming right after the destruction of Alderaan. But there are repeatedly moments where she, like, responds to Luke's hopefulness with, like, why would you expect anyone to be kind in this galaxy, you know? Yeah. No, there's none of that, like, wide eyed optimism that I think we usually associate Star Wars with now. Mm hmm. Yeah, and then when you get to the dialogue between Luke and Vader, again, it's just it's just so shallow and empty compared to what we get in Empire, which, again, isn't fair. It's clearly like a bolt of genius that inspired Lucas to actually go with the whole I am your father thing. But yeah, reading this, it really makes you appreciate what we did get because um, this is Luke and Vader talking to each other. For just a moment, Vader seemed shaken Ben Kenobi's dead. I killed him myself. You are simple Luke Skywalker, an ex-farm boy from Tatooine. You are no master of the Force, and the equal of Ben Kenobi you'll never be. Ben Kenobi is with me, Vader. Luke snarled, gaining confidence every second, and the Force is with me too. And, yeah, you do get dialogue that's kind of similar to that in Empire, but then it's like subverted and challenged by these big revelations and twists and mm-hmm. that part is lacking here. Yeah. Again, it's just so amusing to read Vader like berating Luke, laughing at him for being simple Luke Skywalker from Tatooine. It's like, you're also from Tatooine, dude. This is your son. Yeah. Luke Skywalker. Uh, that's your name too. <laughs> yeah. It's just some weird parallel version of vader who's just a, just a big boogeyman you know there's nothing to him he doesn't have any depth yeah he doesn't have any conflict he's just the bad guy yeah and it's also worth noting that he's also functioning kind of as like a dog's body slash a functionary in this book he's just basically been sent to fetch them while he is like the big boss of the book you don't get the impression that he's a hugely powerful person in the empire He's clearly been sent on this mission by some higher authority. I guess that's kind of similar to how he's portrayed in the first Star Wars. Oh yeah, no, exactly. So it's consistent with that, but it's interesting to watch the trajectory for the character in the original trilogy. Because by the time you get to Empire, you see him almost as being at the top of the totem pole, apart from Palpatine. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that depiction in Star Wars is almost brushed under the carpet as a distant memory. Whereas this doubles down on it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I guess because it there's nothing to contradict that perception of it, so it's just that we learn more, and so does Luke. But, you know, the Emperor is just so far removed from all of this. Yeah, I think he's mentioned in this book, but he's never yeah. explored or in any sort of detail. Mm-hmm. Yep, and then we get the old, um, like, arm removal from Luke to Vader, which is a nice piece of foreshadowing for what's to come. Yeah, I do like that Luke gets gets in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He won't lose his arm at this point, he just, he takes Vader's off. Yeah. Does- and Vader's just, like, looking down at it, like, oh. And then, like, he picks up the arm and takes the saber out of it it's just like it's really funnily described yeah i think i got confused at that point it's like i'm not sure i can follow this anymore yeah because it's not described as like him having like a fake robot arm or anything so i do wonder if part of it is like vader's supposed to be fully human under there Mm. yeah these are all the sorts of interesting questions that could have been explored but are definitely not explored well, I guess because how would Alan Dean Foster even know? Oh, yeah. Right? Like, there's no, there's not really a concept. I guess there's the whole Ben Kenobi describing him as more machine than man, but what does that actually mean? Yeah. Are we supposed to understand him to be a human at this point, or is he, like, full cyborg, or what? Yeah. I'm guessing George just didn't answer Alan's calls about that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, ah, oh, I just won't go into it, it's fine. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Sod it. Um, and yeah, then we get a, a touching love confession from Luke to Leia, where he goes, I'm sorry, he murmured, turning his head to where the princess lay crumpled on the temple floor. I'm sorry, Leia. I loved you. So that to me suggests she's dead, because he's very firmly using the past tense. Yeah. And that, like, there's nothing left at this point. He's, like, kind of accepting that he's going to die too. Yeah, exactly. It's just absolute resignation. And yeah, then can you explain exactly what happens next with um, the whole crystal thing and everything working out swell in the end? Because I got kind of confused. Well, Halla comes into the temple and gets the crystal, right? And Mm -hmm. she can see Luke and Leia there. And then she goes outside and you can tell she's thinking about just leaving them. (laughs) And then realizes, oh no, you know, I should really go back for them. They're good kids. So she goes back in and she uh, tries to give Luke the crystal. It says, um, she licked her lips, looking skyward, then placed the crystal in his lap, shoving it at him as if it were burning her. Here, I can't do much of it. I'm a faker, a charlatan of the force, not a master. So I could do bigger and better parlor tricks. I'd waste it. And the Empire would find me soon anyway. Um, So Luke takes the crystal and then it basically heals him. Mm-hmm. it like starts to warm up and Hala's like it doesn't feel warm what are you talking about but it works for Luke <laughs> heals him and then he uses it to heal Leia too yes and it's sort of and it would be this really like huge miraculous moment but it's just underplayed so severely especially with the whole headache line it's like oh okay that could be this really grand mystical moment but Okay. Yeah, again, I just find the editing in this book fascinating because it really is like rushed in these last few pages, the climax of the story. Yeah. Like that they managed to get out alive. Darth Vader has been defeated, or at least, you know, we leave that for another day. He fell down the well. Yeah. I think I got to like the last 10 pages and they were still fighting Vader. And I was like, wow, they're going to have to pull a rabbit out of a hat to resolve this. <laughs> And they do. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's very convenient, all neatly wrapped up. Um, When he heals Leia, (laughs) because of course she's scarred all over her body, 
Um, it's described as her beauty is restored. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Fate the princess is still beautiful. <laughs> um, whereas when they're describing Luke's healing, it's, you know, all about his physical strength returning, his connection to the force, how he describes he felt like he was dead for a minute. Mm. Um, it just makes me so thankful for Leia being able to use the Force in Empire and The Last Jedi and how differently Rey is written in the sequel novelizations. Yeah. Even by Alan Dean Foster. So, you know, growth. Yeah, no, exactly. He could learn. Because, yeah, like when we like say these comments about Alan Dean Foster and like how things are written here, it's not any sort of personal attack on him because like as much as I hate to make excuses, but these sorts of tropes and these sorts of characterizations... They would have just been taken for granted in this type of fiction at this point in history. So no one would have been having these sorts of conversations about it back then. I might be wrong, like so I don't want to say that unequivocally, but I highly doubt that this was controversial or deemed weird or just like creepy in any way back then. Um, I mean, for a female audience, it might have been. Yeah, that's true. But it's just so vastly different from what we get of Leia in the movies. And even, you know, in that interview you talked about earlier where he was like, she's no damsel in distress. She doesn't need to be rescued. It's like, but you have her rescued over and over throughout this book. Yeah. So it's just kind of not really picked up on. Yeah. No, it's true. So maybe I don't want to make too many excuses. (laughs) Well, it it just, it is what it is. And like you say, we can just put it down to being written in the 70s. Yeah, exactly. And he did much better with the Force Awakens novelization, which has many quirks and eccentricities, like Kylo's long speech. Um, But that's why we love that novelization. Um, And (laughs) yeah, I wouldn't call any aspects of the Force Awakens novelization disturbing. So not like quite a few passages in this. There's one part I really enjoy right at the end. I think it might be the last page or two um, when R2 and 3PO are kind of woken up because when Vader came into the temple, he was like, I shut down your droids. They can't help you. You know, he's killed the other creatures. They're basically on their own. Yeah. Um, When they come out and they reboot the droids, 3PO is talking about how Vader knew all the proper code words and commands to shut them down. Yeah. And I really like the idea here that even though it's obviously not the case at the time... But that works out in terms of the canon direction of it turning out that R2 and 3PO once upon a time belonged to Anakin. Yeah. So of course he would know all the code words. No, that's a really good point. (laughs) Maybe George did read the book and was inspired to make that choice because of Alan Dean. I think that's quite beautiful. (laughs) So yeah, just to wrap this up as a final thought... Where do you think Star Wars would be now if, say, for example, they had never filmed Empire Strikes Back and instead they had filmed Splinter of the Mind's Eye? Do you think there would have been another film? Do you think we'd still care about Star Wars now slash be talking about it? Uh, I don't think Disney would have bought it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there might have been the film adaptation of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, but I can't imagine it going for much longer than that beyond books and comics. Yeah. It's, it is so pulpy and straightforward and the characterization is so plain there on the surface. It's not... Empire changed everything. Oh, yeah. 100%. It became a very different series, I think, with that movie. And, yeah. Like, if Splinter of the Minds, I was trying to establish any sort of template for what Star Wars might have been going forward 
which was clearly this very traditional pulpy serial type adventure i i certainly wouldn't be that engaged with it now <laughs> let's put it that yeah. way and i'm really glad harrison ford decided to come back oh god yeah his absence has felt so strongly in this book because I, I know han's always been a favorite of mine but he's i think you've said before that he's not really one of your favorites but did this kind of make you reassess that a little bit and realize that he's more of a key ingredient than you'd previously thought oh yeah no definitely like i think i always recognized that he was important to the mix and that stars isn't the same without han solo in it but reading this really drove that home i think because yeah he just adds like some spice to it you know and he's such a good foil to both luke and leia um with what he brings to them and how they like rub off on each other and how they interact there's just something so delightful in all that interplay and when that's stripped out you realize that star was as much poorer for it yeah this firmly cemented me as a han leia shipper i mean i always have been i've always loved the way that their romance evolved yeah um but yeah i much prefer the way leia is with him um luke and leia it just falls kind of flat for me and because luke's the primary protagonist it is all about his perspective whereas han and leia because they're both characters who are like deuteragonists um i just think it works a little better yeah um because they're kind of more on equal footing and you get more of both of their perspectives of how that story's evolving and they kind of miscommunicate with each other and if you were getting it all from luke's perspective uh it would just kind of feel a bit more one-sided yeah no that's really true they're very much on a level in empire and they both feel like fully realized people in a way that leia definitely does not in this novel yeah and it broadens the story because then of course between empire and return of the jedi luke's main dynamic is with his father whereas you can then have these subplots going on with han and leia um whereas Splinter of the mind's eye it wasn't just a case of the story feeling small like plot wise but it was characterized as well it was just all so centered on luke mm. that you miss that grand epic um ensemble cast feel that you get with star wars yeah exactly it was very much the luke skywalker show and it's m- much as i like luke star wars is more than luke so yeah we're very grateful for how things did turn out but yeah even though it might seem like we ragged on it for the whole time we found it amusing yes like it wasn't like i was reading it and getting angry it was just funny because it is such a product of its time and it's so redundant at this point right yeah yeah it's like reading something out of a time capsule yeah no exactly it's so dated but that's also part of the appeal you know it's a fun read if you go into it with the right mindset yeah it's just yeah it's special that we have this (laughs) yeah i'm happy it still exists and may it forever exist is an interesting curio of times past for stars <laughs> okay cool so i think that's probably the best point to wrap things up since we've been going for quite a while so i'm rachel and you can find me at stars nonsense on tumblr and at journal of the stars on wordpress where can people find you kirsty I'm Basila Bay on Tumblr, and usually I'm Scavengers Horde on Twitter, but I think you'll be taking over the Twitter account for a while, right? I will be, yeah, at least for the next few <laughs> weeks. And yeah, then we will reassess, obviously, as we've discussed. <laughs> but yeah, we'll obviously keep people posted about what's happening with the show and when to expect episodes. And 
I won't quite be able to replicate Kirsty's talent for Twitter and social media. So apologies in advance if the Twitter becomes a bit more boring when I'm in charge. I'm sure you do a great job. Oh, don't worry. thank you. But yeah, Kirsty will be back, and yeah, we all wish her well. And yeah, I really look forward to the next episode when you'll be on the show. But I also look forward to having guests on and stuff. So yeah, there's gonna be lots to look forward to, guys. So stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great opportunity to get some more voices. So. Mm-hmm. Okay then. So until next time. Bye. Bye.